Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Welcome to Encounter Church. So glad that you're here, whether you're physically in the room or joining us online. Uh, t- my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. And today we're going to continue our series called Mastermind. And uh, for those who maybe are kind of jumping into this series fresh and new today or just recently, this has been one of those really powerful series. I would encourage you to, to use the app that Jason referenced to go back and check some of the messages um, because I'm hearing from some of you this is life-changing. And this is helpful. And, um, and this is a deep passion point of mine. And so it's been a kind of a privilege to be able to walk through. We normally do a series a month. And we've actually took this series and expanded into two months. Because we knew there's just so much richness in what this could do for our lives in transforming us. Um, this past week, um, my daughter and I had flown in to surprise my mom. Uh, we... Uh, kind of kept it on, under wraps and no one knew. And I actually have an 18-year-old brother who's going to be graduating high school soon. And so I was trying to come in to be able to see him play baseball and, and kind of take part of that. And so we show up. Um, we have an incredible time, just, but it's a really quick trip. And we get back on the airplane 24 hours later. And we're flying, and we're about uh, uh, right outside of Providence when um, something I've never had happen before happens. Um, all of a sudden, the, the steward um, comes over the sound kind of speaker system and says, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've just heard reports of really strong turbulence right up ahead, so I'm going to ask everyone to immediately return to your seats, uh, put your seat back in the right position, flip up your tray tables. Um, we're going to be coming down the aisles very quickly uh, with motion sickness bags. I would encourage you, if you're prone to motion sickness, to grab one of these bags as we come down the hall. And I'm like, what is happening? And this guy like is kind of sprinting down with these motion sickness bags, and it looks like the floor of Wall Street. I mean, people are grabbing at it, and it's like insane. And, and Ella's sitting right here watching a cartoon with headphones on, completely unaware. And I'm like, do I need to text my wife and say, hey, in case we don't make it home? Like, like what am I going into here? And so the guy's you know, people are grabbing the motion sickness bags all around me. He comes back by the second time with motion sickness grab like bags, and because it's like you know, somebody wants to use the bathroom, he's like, basically, it's it's at your own risk. If you want to lose your life, you can go to the bathroom. I'm like, should I tell Ella what's about to happen? And I'm like, hey man, um, it seems a little like frantic. Is everything okay? And he's like, well, we just heard reports from a pilot right ahead um, that going down into Providence, he uh, had the worst turbulence he has ever had in all his 19 years of flying, that it was insane, uh, that was really rough. And I was like, oh my goodness, like this may be bad. And so I kind of tap on Ella's uh, shoulder and she's completely unaware. And she's like, yes, daddy. And I'm like, hey, pumpkin. Um, So it's going to get a little bumpy. Just want to warn you. And so like the the plane may shake a little bit. It'll essentially be like a roller coaster up in the sky. Um, So just want to give you a heads up in case you feel the train. She's like, oh, the plane shakes. She's like, okay. She puts on her headphones and, you know, and like 10, 15 minutes later, nothing's happening, and they're like, prepare for, you know, landing, and we land, and, um, you know, people are kind of like collectively like sighing this like, <sighs> and Ella takes off her headphones and looks at me, and it's like, Daddy, what happened? And I'm like, what do you mean, pumpkin? 
She was like, where's the turbulence? I said, babe, are you disappointed? She was like, I was looking forward to it. I said, like, half the plane, you know, is making sure their will is up to date. And my daughter is over here sad because the free roller coaster ride didn't play out for her. And it's just one of those moments. Like, I have these moments frequently with her. Um, Her little brain, her little mind is completely delightful. For those who've ever been around my daughter, I hear this from the elementary um, volunteers um, when they are in her small group. They're like, your daughter's like a little ray of sunshine, isn't she? I was like, yes, every day is the best. Best day ever. Like, no joke. When she wakes up, she wakes up happy and singing and a lot. It's like life is a musical to her. Not the sad song musical, like the everything, the hills are alive with the sound of music kind of like happiness. And it's one of those like beautiful, delightful. If you have any disposition towards cloudy day thinking, you get around her and you're instantly uplifted. I love her little mind. Um, part of the challenge is that if you had taken me back seven or eight years ago, it was that same thing that terrified me. When my wife told me she was pregnant, um, the, the first time she ever told me she was pregnant, I cried. I don't cry a lot, but I cried because I was so terrified that my OCD that I live with every single day was going to be something I was going to give to her. And I, I lived with that fear, still do to some degree, honestly. But it was this deeply rooted, terrifying thing for me. And I was like, oh, please let her not have the mind that I have. Because my world is dark. And I fight that. And I've fought it for decades. And I did not want her to wake up with that. And so partially because um, of how she is every day, I, it's one of those things that I pay attention to her mind. And I'm intentional as a, as a father about teaching her how to have good mental habits because I recognize that I could still have a ticking time bomb on my hands. And I want to lead her into a place where mentally she can thrive, not just wake up every day trying to survive like I've had in seasons of my life. And this is, I think, why this series is so passionate for me, because this has been my life for decades. And when I became a Christian, what was so amazing to me was that I discovered that God cared about my thought life long before I even knew that there was a God. In fact, Jesus, when he came onto the scene, he emphasized our thought life in a way that caught people off guard. They, as a religious group of people, had fixated on what they do. And making sure they did all the right things. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he's telling them to pay attention to how they think about things. And it's this radical notion. And as we get close to wrapping up the series next week, what I want to do today is approach it a little bit differently. Because we don't have enough weeks in a year to talk about all the different ways, all the different minefields that we can step into that blow up in our lives. And today, I want to kind of impart to you some of these basic um, mental habits, things that we intentionally try to foster and teach Ella regularly, my daughter, as well as um, these practices and principles that are throughout Scripture. And so this morning, I want to take a journey with you and step into one of the oldest stories in the Bible. Not the oldest, but it's one of the oldest. Because in this story, this incredibly long backstory and the kind of front story that we're going to look like, we're going to look at, we find a mental health role model for us 
who demonstrates a series of habits that I think are essential for you and I if we're going to thrive and master our minds. Uh, Jason referenced the app, which is something we've created for you for free. Um, It allows us to put the passages for the week, gives you resources. And you'll find this passage has already been preloaded for you in the app. If not, you're going to see it on the screens behind me as I walk through it. It's found in the book of Genesis, which is perhaps one of the more famous books in the first volume of the Bible called the Old Testament. It's the book of beginnings. It is a series of beginnings. It's constantly spiraling, the beginning of the beginning, and then the beginning of God's plan to bring redemption and hope to the world through a man named Abraham and his family. And as uh, the storyline progresses, Genesis is taking you to a moment that answers that crucial question for people who ever saw the movie Ten Commandments. How did those people get in Egypt in the first place? That's what Genesis is ultimately setting us up for, to understand how did a group of people, the Jewish people, end up in Egypt to begin with? Because that's where Exodus and the movie Ten Commandments, that's where that whole starting point happens. And so the way it leads up to this is through the man that we're going to look at today named Joseph. And um, in Genesis 50, verse 1, we see this statement. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him. And kissed him. Now, what's incredible, I, I, I love the Bible, and is that sentence, if you'd have stepped into Joseph's life 30 years before, he would have never imagined that statement being written. You see, for those who never heard of Joseph or studied Joseph's backstory, that's one of those statements that would have been one of Joseph's dreams, but he would have pretty much surrendered the idea of that ever happening. When Joseph was a young teenager, he lived in a household where he was uh, kind of the central point of jealousy for his siblings. His father, Jacob, who would later uh, have the nickname Israel, uh, had 11 boys. And in the midst of those boys, there was one kid, Joseph, the youngest, who was the favorite. Now, I know parents uh, have this thing where they say there's no favorite. And maybe for some of you, you still bear that, you know that you were not the favorite. Or some of you, you knew you were the favorite. But it was at least not spoken out loud that there was a favorite, right? And yet, what do you see in Joseph's story is that the father is pretty blatant that he has a favorite. He tells not just Joseph, like some parents, don't tell your siblings, you're my favorite. And then they go to the other siblings, don't tell your other siblings, you're my favorite. Right? Now this is, Jacob would tell all the sons, Joseph's my favorite. Which created tension in the household. So much tension, in fact, that Joseph, as a young teenager, is actually sold into slavery by his brothers. Imagine hating your brother so much that you sell him into slavery. I mean, that takes sibling rivalry to a whole new level. Me and my brother fought, but I never entertained selling him. I mean, this is how bad this household is. And so Joseph, sold into slavery, is taken to a foreign land where he doesn't speak the language, and he ends up as a household servant to a very powerful man named Potiphar. Now, Joseph is seemingly very attractive, good-looking guy because he seems to catch the attention of Potiphar's wife, who then begins a series of uh, kind of attempts to pull him in seductively. Joseph is 
very devoted to God and continues to kind of rebuff her advances, ultimately one day having to flee her presence after she trapped him. She, embarrassed by the moment, makes up a story that he tried to assault her. And so Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, is now being sold and turned and and lied about and is thrown into prison by his master. And now he's in prison. At this point, he's still a young teenage boy. He's about the equivalent of someone getting a driver's license at this point. And he spends his day and day in and day out living the life in a foreign prison, not speaking the language, dealing with all the pressures that came with ancient prisons. And ultimately what ends up happening is after 10 plus years of being in prison, he meets a guy who has some connections to the Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man on earth at that point. And this man, Joseph, helps him out. And this guy, as he's leaving prison, because he had a stint in prison because of some choices he'd made, says to Joseph, I won't forget you, Joseph. You help me out, and when I get to Pharaoh, I'm going to help you out too. Two years later, he still hasn't been helped out. Joseph's had a series of letdowns and disappointments and hurts, betrayals. And one day that man remembers, oh, that guy Joseph helped me when Pharaoh is going through a difficult moment and is trying to find advice, he ultimately connects Joseph to Pharaoh. And through a series of incredible events, Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. And in the process of that, his brothers, because of a regional famine, come to him, and he's able to restore his family and even move his father from the land that they lived into Egypt so that they can all survive and kind of make it through this really dark kind of period, seven-year period, when there's this regional famine where people are starving. And Joseph would have never predicted that storyline. And now 30 years from that moment when he was sold into slavery, this is where we find himself. His father has now passed away. But for 17 years, Joseph has had his father just down the street from him. Life had been good. And now that his father has passed away, we see this in verse 2. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. Remember, Jacob had another name, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. Now that 70 days is a collective period 40 of those days was part of that 70. Now, if you remember from ancient history, Egyptians were really good at preserving the dead, right? We still have their mummies thousands of years later in our museums scattered around the world. And they were masters at preserving dead bodies. And this is what Joseph does. He says, hey, preserve my father, mummify him. And so they mummify him. And during that time period, they give Joseph's father a state funeral. It's a massive ceremony where holidays are happening. The whole nation collectively, including Pharaoh, are weeping and mourning for the loss of Jacob. And then after those 70 days, when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath. And said, I'm about to die. Bury 
me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Now this is just an interesting backdrop because Joseph knows he's the most important person in Egypt. Pharaoh is not going to be very excited about the idea of his COO taking a vacation for an extended amount of time. This would have caused Pharaoh some strife. So Joseph in wisdom appeals to the one part of Pharaoh's kind of makeup that would have very much been inclined to listen. You see, Pharaohs would spend their entire reign often fixated on the moment they would die. Hence, pyramids. Those were just grand burial chambers. Pharaohs obsessed with building their own graves because they believed that was the way that they kind of, kind of forever locked in their ability to get to the afterlife. And this is why Joseph approaches Pharaoh, who would be very reluctant to let Joseph go, with the idea that my father dug his own grave, which Pharaoh would have appreciated because that's what that Pharaoh had been doing for decades at this point. Also, he would have appreciated the importance of following up on that funeral procession. And so that's why you see Pharaoh say, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Joseph is saying, I'll come back. Pharaoh hears that. And so Joseph went to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Goshen was a region in that uh, kind of capital city of Egypt at the time where most of the family lived. Now, you kind of have the sense that the state religion has now gone on tour. It's a significant group of people traveling. This is a really difficult concept for us in our modern world. Uh, probably the most recent equivalent would have been when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And, and they put him on a train and transported him from D.C. all the way back to his home state for final burial. That train would stop frequently so that the nation could mourn. Like there was this collective mourning and weeping. The most powerful people in the land came out for that moment. And this is what's happening here with Joseph's father. All of them are traveling with him for this final portion of the funeral we see that chariots in verse 9 chariots and horsemen went up with him in a very large company when they reached the threshing floor of a todd near the jordan they lamented loudly and bitterly and there joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father when the canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of a todd they said the egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning this is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Misrahim, which is essentially the place of mourning for Egyptians. I mean, this is such a big, big thing that the town's name gets changed because of this significant event. So, verse 12, Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had brought, had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. All this backstory to tell you, this is the family graveyard. It's important to many of us still today. It was really important to them back then. This is where their spouses had been buried. This is where they wanted to be buried. And Joseph and his brothers are trying to honor that. Verse 14, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. 
This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw himself down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them. And he spoke kindly to them. It's important to hear all of that backstory. And I appreciate your patience and working through a long passage with words that if you were prompted with a spelling test right now, you might fail. Okay. But the reality is, is all of that backstory helps us to understand something and to see something that is critical right in front of our face. Uh, the Manhattan Project was a period, it was perhaps one of the biggest scientific um, projects ever undertaken. It was during World War II, and it was that Manhattan Project that developed ultimately the nuclear weapon that would end World War II with Japan. But most people, while they know about the Manhattan Project, they don't know that there was another top-secret scientific agency, a, a group that most people didn't even know existed. It was called the Statistical Research Group. It sounds like a business consulting firm. But the Statistical Research Group, where the Manhattan Project was focused on building explosives, the Statistical Research Group was, was built, put together to build equations to help the U.S. win the war against Axis powers. Their jobs were a little less bombastic in the sense that they would sit around and figure out what's the best flight pattern for a fighter pilot to take in order to overtake an enemy plane? What's the most efficient placement of machine guns on airplane wings or at the tips so that they can maximize efficiency? These were the sharpest people in America that the Manhattan Project and the Statistical Research Group would produce multiple Nobel Prize winners. And one of those Nobel Prize winners who go on to invent, uh, you had both MIT and Harvard Statistic Group founders would come out of this research group, like brilliant minds. And yet, typically when they were in the room, they were the fourth smartest people in the room. The smartest person in the room was an immigrant by the name of Abraham. Abraham Wald was a brilliant thinker. He had grown up and he had witnessed the transformation of the European continent under Hitler's kind of dark regime and had fled to America and was leading this team. There's a point in the statistical research group where Abraham Wald's genius was kind of most clearly on display. They were trying to tackle the, pro the problem of armor plating airplanes, which is a, a, a little bit of a tension because to armor plate a plane makes the plane heavier, which makes it slower, which limits its distance and makes it a little less effective. So they were trying to figure out how do you armor plate a plane that gives the plane an edge without removing the plane's strengths? And statistical research group had been tasked with figuring out where do you put armor on an airplane? And so Abraham Wald's group had been given this task and they're bringing in planes, they're evaluating where all the bullet holes are, and they settle on a few different places for the plates to be put. So they bring in their findings to Abraham. They bring in the list of all the bullet holes on the plane. And Abraham listens to their presentation, looks at their data, 
and makes an observation. He says, I think you guys have missed it. You're wanting to put the armor on the wrong places. You should put it on the engine. They said, but you don't understand. Abraham, look at the data. That's the place where there's the least amount of bullet holes. He said, no, 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 you're missing it. We shouldn't put armor plates on planes based on the ones that make it back. We should be putting armor on planes on the places where they don't make it back. It's the planes we don't have in front of us that should be guiding us in this problem, not the ones who do. It doesn't matter that there are 15 bullet holes in the wings. Clearly, that doesn't stop the plane from flying. It made it back. And the 17 fuselage holes didn't stop the plane from flying. I think the reason the engine holes are the lowest is because if a plane takes a hit in the engine, it doesn't make it back. Abraham Wald's genius was that he saw that what wasn't there was just as important as what was. And I shared all that backstory of Joseph because I wanted you to have a similar Abraham Wald experience with Joseph's story. Because what's surprising about Joseph's story is, in fact, what's not there. As a pastor, as a human, I've been around enough people who've gone through tragedy, far less tragedy than what Joseph has gone through. And yet they were far more nastier, bitter, angry, because of life and what it had done to him. You see, when you read Joseph's story, you don't see bitterness. You don't see anger. You don't see a, a man carrying a grudge. In fact, his brothers bring that up because they're looking for it and it's not there. They're convinced maybe he's hidden it for so long because it's not apparent on the, su the surface. In fact, they use that word, he's holding a grudge, which is a, a really fun word. I like words. The word grudge, grouch, grumble, they all come from the same root. The idea that kind of right underneath the surface, you know, there's people who get really angry at like the office space and he's like, the guy's like, my stapler, my stapler. He's like mumbling, am I bring this place down, right? Like there's that like, he's just kind of mumbling. And the person, like your kid or, or when you were a teenager and your parents said something and they walked off and you're like, well, so you say that in my face. Obviously. And your parents were like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? And you're like, nothing. Right, but this idea that it's just underneath the surface, but it comes up a little bit in the grumble and the mumble. That root word for all those words is where the word grudge comes from. It's that we're nursing something that's hiding underneath the surface, but can't help but poke up sometimes in the way that we grumble, in the way that we're grouchy. And yet Joseph has none of this. He goes through so many hard times in life, and yet... He's the very opposite of what I have seen other people go through. I had family members in my life who I watched as a young kid, and they were so mad at the world because of what had happened to them. And as a pastor, I sit across from people who are still holding on to things from 20 years ago. And yet Joseph has none of that, which is why I think Joseph is worth learning from. And so I want to walk you through briefly I wish we had time to unpack all of these, but I'm just going to briefly highlight. There's four habits, mental health habits, that Joseph demonstrates in this passage that I think are essential, and they're the reason why Joseph isn't what you would expect. He actually is healthy mentally. 
He's thriving. He's not bitter. The first thing that he does, and it's really um, amazing how much it takes up this entire section, in fact. Um, if you were to kind of read through the story and break down the verses, that you, you'll notice that Joseph spends an amazingly large amount of time in this passage grieving. Right, 70 days here, seven more days once the 70 days are done. Joseph frequently weeps throughout this section. He seems to understand something that maybe for us we've missed. You see, those time frames, they're not arbitrary. They're on purpose. 40, 70, 7. It was something that the ancient world understood that I, I fear sometimes us in the modern world miss. It's that grieving is an essential, intentional thing that has to be done. That grief has to be something that we work through, that we experience, not something we stuff down and ignore. I think our own biology points to the fact that God designed us for this. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is very intriguing to me. Why did God put our physical organ of grief on our face? Why in the world did he make our grief so visible through our tear ducts? You can't hide that. Crying is the strangest thing ever if you take a step back and you think about it. It's this weird physical process where somehow some saltish water leaks from our eyeballs and in the process of leaking out of our eyeballs, it's like something on the inside feels lighter. In fact, we were so good at it, we so intuitively got this, that I imagine that if you have a small child who is not even yet able to speak, they, they understand the importance of grieving losses and that they do it instinctively. They let it leak from their face because they know there's something important about getting it out of the inside. Why does God put the very place of our loss on our face so that only we, you know, we can't see it, but someone sitting across from us can. It's this beautiful design God wired into our very physical being. And oftentimes we miss it. When we were children, Right? Perhaps you got told this growing up when you would cry. They would say, grow up. Stop crying. Or maybe if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to stop, you know, cry about. Which is like the worst logic ever. I was like, I'm already trying to stop. If you give me something that makes me cry, it's just going to further perpetuate this vicious cycle that I find myself in. Right? But we were taught that. Stop crying. Grow up. Man up. Be tough. And, and granted, maybe some of the things that we grieved about when we were children were childish. But I fear that sometimes we mistook that lesson to think grieving was childish. Grieving itself is not a childish act. It is a life-giving act that if you do not choose to do it, will rob you of your life. It's that essential. Live long enough, spend enough time with people who've walked through grief, who've never grieved, and you will find that grief that stays inside starts to sour. Spend time talking to a psychologist or a counselor, and you will find that 
unresolved grief manifests itself in ways that's almost illogical. That when people choose to ignore and to skip over the losses in their life, that loss doesn't leave them. It stays inside of them. And it just creeps up in other weird ways. Things that make them get angry or start crying for no reason. And it's because there's grief sitting on the inside, souring, fermenting. And they've never dealt with it. And God intended us to be people who grieve the losses in our lives. Not skip over them. Not just run past them. And it doesn't matter the level of that loss. If it's a loss, there should be grief attached to it. I'm not saying you call in sick because your pet died and you shut down your life for seven days. But it is appropriate that in the midst of your grief that you mourn. Some of you I just offended because the idea of mourning for your pet should be more than seven days. Some of you were offended at the notion of mourning for a pet, any pet, for seven days. But the reality is it illustrates the point that all loss is personal. The person beside you cannot weep or grieve for you. It's distinctly personal. And that is something you have to do. And it's something that Joseph bravely does throughout this entire passage. He grieves. He weeps. He mourns the loss of his father. He mourns the loss of what could have been, should have been, but didn't. He mourns all of that. And by mourning and weeping and wailing bitterly, it says, he's able to get all of that out of him so that he can move on. So that he can grow. Because life is hard. Whether you're a teenager and you are mourning the loss of the first time you've experienced betrayal. Or whether you're sitting in this room and you're still mourning the loss of your first marriage. Or you're mourning the loss of the career that never happened. Or you're mourning the loss of the kids that never came. Those things are a reality in our life that we have to grieve if we ever want to be able to find life on the other side. You don't push through. You don't press through. You don't, you don't just move on. You have to sit intentionally in that season of weeping to experience the freedom that comes on the other side of grief. It is so strange. But I'm telling you that something powerful happens when you grieve. Because if not, you and I start to become bitter people. We start to project our past pain onto our present situations and circumstances. We start to lose hope because we haven't worked past the last time that felt so hopeless. And this is an essential life skill. And and for some of us today, I would just press in and say, you're in this room and you're still carrying unresolved grief. You hear the sound of my voice and you still haven't wept over that first relationship that you lost. You still haven't mourned that season of singleness that you never imagined would come. You haven't dealt with the health 
loss that came when the doctor said, oh, by the way, this is permanent. There has to be grief on the other side. Grieving brings life. And I would encourage you, if you are carrying grief, it's never going to leave you unless you mourn its loss. But by mourning its loss, you find the hope to have that second relationship or that next marriage or that restored relationship with your adult children or that new season of being an empty nester. You need to weep what you've lost so that you can gain hold of what could come in this next season. And Joseph understood that. Joseph also understood the, the importance of forgiveness. This is why his brothers, they, they bring this up. They say to him, hey, are you holding a grudge? And he's like, are you kidding me? Why are you even, I've forgiven you a decade ago. We're good. Like Joseph understood the importance of forgiveness. He doesn't have this grudge. He doesn't have that grumble and the mumble that they're afraid is lurking underneath the surface. In fact, the Hebrew word that they use there is a word satam, which is only one letter off. It's, it's a sister word to the word satan, which is where we get our English word Satan. Unresolved, not, not forgiving. The, the Hebrew understanding was it was such a dark thing that it was akin to the word Satan, which was the, not just the personification of all things evil and a lack of goodness, but the actual person of evil too. When we choose to not forgive, when we choose to hold a grudge, we are satoming which is a scary notion when you think about the idea of Satan and all that's loaded into that with Christian theology. And Joseph's like, no, I've forgiven you. Because Joseph has that mental habit of forgiving quickly. He understands that unforgiveness is an incredibly dangerous thing. It lurks deep it, and it grows. Grief may, may ferment, but unforgiveness... It sours and hardens your heart and it turns to bitterness and then it becomes a cancer that begins to eat away and rob you of so many things in your life that you should have. What happens when we don't forgive is that we start to project our past into the present. We make present relationships pay for what past deeds were done to us. We're penalizing people in our present because of something that happened in our past that we haven't worked through, that we haven't forgiven, that we haven't dealt with. And it's this projection onto our present and in our future. It's this hardening in us that turns the cynical where we start to kind of distrust people and their motives. We make our current boss and coworkers pay for what our past ones did because we think that that's how they're going to be because that's how he was or how she was. There's things that some of you haven't forgiven your spouse for three weeks ago. And they're just growing in debt every single day. Because they probably do have a stupid mouth that gets them in trouble. But the thing about forgiveness is it's not about them. The forgiveness is ultimately about you finding freedom too. Because when you choose to not forgive, you may be thinking you're harming them. But I don't know if you've noticed, they seem to keep going on. Their life keeps moving. But yours doesn't. 
You still think about it. And it was probably something small, something really tiny, that when you finally do bring it up, they, they don't even remember saying it or doing it because it was three weeks or three months ago. And for some of us today, if we're going to experience mental health, you need to lean into those places, those things that you have not forgiven people for. You need to stop making people in your present pay for what people did to you in your past. They're not those people. But I can warn you that if you don't deal with it, you're going to keep finding in your present what you saw in your past because you always find what you're looking for. Because no one in your life is perfect, except maybe you in your mind. Right? You're not going to find the good that's there because you're so focused on the bad that's been done to you in the past. And you're going to keep finding that bad in the present. And I'm not saying that there's not issues around boundaries. I would encourage you, if you've never read the book on boundaries, read the book on boundaries because boundaries are healthy. But I'm saying to you that unforgiveness ultimately is a poison that kills you, not them. But Joseph didn't just have a healthy understanding of mental habits, letting go of grief and letting go of forgiveness and releasing the bad. Joseph intentionally also had the practice of the good. Joseph um, is grateful, which is something you hear me talk about a lot because gratitude is central to the Christian faith. It's an essential part of the Christian faith. It's wired into everything. It's wired into the songs that are sung. It's wired into the prayers that we're told to pray. Gratitude is a fundamental driving portion of the Christian faith. Because gratitude is about intentionally focusing and grabbing hold of the good that is still present, no matter how bad the situation and circumstances are. Which is something you see Joseph do, right? When they say you're holding a grudge, he's like, are you kidding me? Look around. People's lives have been saved by what you did. Many of us, we would not have said that. We would have been tempted to say, oh, oh, yeah, I'm nursing a grudge. Just wait till we get back to Egypt. I got prison sales picked out for all you suckers, right? <laughs> like that would have been the very natural thing to do. But Joseph is able to say, no, look at the good. You're alive. Dad lived 17 more years because of what you did to me. Now, you were horrible in what you did, but I've forgiven you. And look what came out of it. He looked for good and he found it. And this was an essential skill. I found in my own personal life, I can't both simultaneously gripe and complain and be grateful at the same time. It's not physically possible. And so I pick one. And I pick one that I want to be around and I pick one that I ultimately want to become. I pick gratitude. And it may be that for you, the way you foster this mental habit is you journal and you write it down every single day. It may be that you do it conversationally, or it may be that you do it through your prayers. This is something central to the Causey household. One of our family rules are the Causeys are grateful people. That's who we are. Every single day in multiple conversations and in our nightly prayers, we always, always give voice to specific things that day that we're grateful for. On the way to school, dropping my daughter off, I pray specific things that I'm already grateful for in that morning. Because gratitude is an essential mental health habit for you and I. But ultimately, Joseph's probably strength, his greatest 
power tool and this mental arsenal he had was the thing that he said right after the question, are you nursing a grudge? It was something that Joseph understood that probably gave him his biggest asset and ultimately allow us to read and see a Joseph that we see here today. Um, About 12, 13 years ago, um, I experienced my first ever surgery. Um, I'd gone um, two and a half decades with no surgery. I was always proud of that when they asked me in doctor's office, have you ever had a surgery? And I was like, no, no, I have not. (laughs) And... um, and so, but about, uh, about 15 years ago, 13 years ago, um, unfortunately, I had my first surgery. I played soccer growing up, and um, I was a forward, which meant I was the person frequently trying to score goals. And I got kicked a lot. Um, my legs got damaged. And ultimately, what ended up happening was that parts of my veins actually inside my leg got really damaged. And it was causing a lot of pain that wasn't going away. And going to a doctor and saying, look, we've got to go inside. We've got to do some extensive amount of repair because this isn't going to leave you. You're way too young to be dealing with this kind of vein pain, and it's only going to get worse. And so they set me up, and I go into the doctor's office, and there's this large bed, and I'm like, are you guys going to put me under like they do in the TV shows? And they're like, no, 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 you'll stay awake. I was like, oh. He's like, yeah, you'll just stay awake. Um, We'll numb your leg really well, so you won't have to worry about feeling anything. And I was like, oh, my goodness, okay. So I just lay on this bed for over an hour while you perform surgery on me. Yes. I was like, great. Um, So I I, I lay there, and and he's like, okay. And I I can, like, see everything they're doing down there. Like, they didn't give me a privacy curtain or anything. So I watch him pull out something that I'm pretty sure was, like, Excalibur sword at some other point, but except it was hollow on the inside. He was like, shing, we're going to use this to inject the numbing agent into your leg. And I was, it may pinch a little bit. And by pinch, he meant excruciating agony, of course, as he jammed it inside my leg. Now, what was the funniest part of this whole experience was not him jamming Excalibur into the side of my leg. It was that what was connected to Excalibur was a long plastic tube that went to a foot pump. The same type of foot pump you might use to blow up a mattress or a bike tire. And I'm like, is that thing sanitary, sir? Because I'm pretty sure I have one of those in my garage. And so he's like, no, this is so that my hands can be free to use the utensils. This is how I will inject the numbing agent into your leg. And I was like, oh, okay. So he goes, katoosh, katoosh, katoosh. And he was like, we're going to wait just a minute. It'll start to numb your leg and you'll be good. I was like, oh, okay, wonderful. So I sit there and he lets a minute go by and he's small talking as if I want to small talk with him while I'm laying on the table. And um, he's like, all right, good. We're going to start our incision now. We're going to begin to cut. We're going to start a procedure. In about an hour, Mr. Causey, you'll be done. He goes to cut and I scream, yeah. He said, oh, did you feel that? I was like, yes, I felt that. He was like, oh, no worries. Kadoosh, 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 kadoosh. We're going to let it sit for two minutes. Sometimes people need a little bit more than what they're usually used to. I was like, oh, okay, wonderful. So we sit there for a couple minutes. He's like, Mr. Causey, I'm going to resume our surgery now. He then begins to cut again, and I'm like, ah! Oh, did did you still feel that, Mr. Causey? Like, yes, I felt that. He's like, oh, kadoosh, 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 kadoosh. We're going to let it sit for a few more minutes. A few more minutes go by, and he's like, you know what? In fact, um, I'm going to start with another part of the procedure. Um, a little bit further into your thigh, a little bit deeper tissue. You won't feel it, and that will give us more time to uh, 
actually allow the medicine to, to spread. And, um, and so he pulls out what looks like some terrifying salad tongs and, um, that have points. And then he proceeds to work towards this deeper tissue. He pulls on one of my veins and I feel it on the inside. And I'm like, he's like, Oh, Mr. Causey, you felt that? I mean, dude is blowing up my leg like an air, like the tire. I'm watching my leg get bigger and bigger. And I'm like, doctor, can my leg handle that much fluid? It seems to be a lot larger than the other leg. Oh, they can expand. It's amazing what skin can handle. He's just pumping this thing up like it's an, like an, an inflatable tube. And he's like, this should do it. We're going to wait five minutes. I've given you so much numbing agent, there's no way you'll feel anything. And after about five minutes, he goes to cut, and I still feel it. And I'm faced with a dilemma. I either allow my leg to explode, because he's going to pump more of that stuff in me if I say something, or I have to deal and grin and bear it. And so for the remaining of the surgery, I endure all the pain feeling every single cut and pull because it turns out the numbing agent they were giving me that day, my body wasn't responding to. But the thing, this amazing thing that enabled me to go through the experience was with every single cut, with every single pull, with every single piece of pain that that hand caused, I ultimately found comfort knowing that the heart and the head of the one guiding that hand was doing every single one of these things so that I could find freedom from the pain that I suffered every single day. I knew that the hand may not feel good, but its purpose and its attention was good. It was desiring to bring health into my life. It was desiring to bring freedom into my life. And I think this is what Joseph understands. Joseph gets that even in the midst of all of those damaging circumstances he was walking through, God was still good. God's purposes were still good and that he had a power to take devastating grief and do something beautiful with it. That he could take brokenness and bring life out of it. Which is why he could say, do not be afraid. Am I not in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Yes, it was harm. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. These are incredibly beautiful words with a man who understood personally that the hand may hurt, but the heart, the heart behind it all is good. And that him, Joseph, being able to grieve and understanding the importance of grieving our losses, of forgiving those wrongs that have been done against us, of practicing gratitude regularly and looking for the good that is present in our life and ultimately trusting that even when life is not good, God still is good, allowed him to become the man that we see in Genesis 50. And that, those four habits are why ultimately he is our mental health role model because in his example, we see a path for you and I to mentally master our mind. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. 
If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.